Hello and welcome to another episode of The Legend of Driz, read by myself, Chadwick Daigle. And we are starting off with the next chapter in R.A. Salvatore's Legend of Driz, Book 2, Exile. It's going to start off at Chapter 15. But first, I just want to say thank you again to everyone who is supporting this podcast and this dramatic reading. I appreciate so much all of the love you guys are sending my way. If you want to follow me more, let me know how things are doing. You can reach me on Twitter at at crow underscore HVVH, which would be K-R-O-W-E underscore H-V-V-H, or on Instagram at Chadwick1224, or on Facebook at Chadwick Daigle, D apostrophe A-I-G-L-E. Just to let you folks know, coming at the end of September, I believe it is, so the end of next month, I will be starting a new podcast streaming a Dungeons and Dragons game. It's going to be a lot of fun. I have a lot of local people here to Michigan. We're going to start off from the very beginning. It's been my first time doing this. And if you enjoy that, please let us know about that. The name of the podcast will be called The Wizard of Dind. Without further ado, we shall continue with R.A. Salvatore's The Legend of Drizzt, Book 2, Exile, Chapter 15, Pointed Reminders. What do you know? Matron Malice demanded of Jerlaxel. Walking at her side across the compound of House de Warden, Malice normally would not have been so conspicuous with the infamous mercenary, but she was worried and impatient. Reported stirring within the hierarchy of Menzel Baranzan's ruling families did not bode well for House de Warden. No, Jorlaxel echoed a feigned surprise. Malice scowled at him, as did Brisa, walking on the other side of the brash mercenary. Charlaxel cleared his throat, though it sounded more like a laugh. He couldn't supply Malice with the details of the rumblings. He was not so foolish as to betray the more powerful houses of the city, but Charlaxel could tease Malice with a simple statement of logic that only confirmed what she already had assumed. Sincala, the spirit wraith has been in use for a very long time. Malice struggled to keep her breathing inconspicuously smooth. She realized that Jarlaxle knew more than he would say, and the fact that the calculated mercenary had so coolly stated the obvious told her that her fears were justified. The spirit wraith of Zaknafian had indeed been searching for Drizzt for a very long time. Malice did not need to be reminded that the Spider Queen was not known for her patience. Have you any more to tell me? Malice asked. Jarlaxle shrugged non-committedly. Then be gone from my house, the matron mother snarled. Jarlaxle hesitated for a moment, wondering if he should demand payment for the little information he had provided. Then he dipped into one of his well-known low, hat-sweeping bows and turned for the gate. He would find his payment soon enough. In the anteroom to the house chapel, an hour later, Matron Malice rested back in her throne and let her thoughts roll out into the winding tunnels of the wild underdark. Her telepathy with the spirit wraith was limited, usually a passing of strong emotions, nothing more. 
but from those internal struggles of Zagnafian, who had been Drizzt's father and closest friend in life, and was now Drizzt's deadliest enemy, Malice could learn much of her spirit wraith's progress. Anxieties caused by Zagnafian's inner struggle inevitably would increase whenever the spirit wraith got close to Drizzt. Now, after the disturbing meeting with Jarlaxle, Malice had to learn of Zagnafian's progress. A short time later, her efforts were rewarded. Merchant Malice insists that the spirit wraith has gone west, beyond the swift Deblin city, Jalax explained to Matron Banray. The mercenary had set out straight from House de Urden to the mushroom grove in the southern end of Menzelbaranzen, to where the greatest of the drow families were housed. The spirit wraith keeps to the rail, Matron Banray mused, more to herself than to her informant. That is good. But Matron Malice believes that Drizzt has a lead out of many days, even ten days, Jarlaxle went on. She told Julius, Matron Benray asked incredulously, amazed that Malice would even reveal such damaging information. Some information can be gathered without words, the mercenary replied slyly. Matron Malice's tone inferred much that she did not wish me to know. Matron Benray nodded and closed her wrinkled eyes, wearied by the whole experience. She had played a role in getting Matron Malice onto the ruling council, but now she could only sit and wait to see if Malice would remain. We must trust in Matron Malice, Matron Benray said at length. Across the room from Benray and Jarlaxel, El Videnvelpe, Matron Benray's companion mind flayer, turned its thoughts away from the conversation. The drow mercenary had reported that Drizzt had gone west, far out from Blindenstone, and that news carried potential importance that could not be ignored. The mind flare projected its thoughts far out to the west, issued a clear warning down the corridors that were not as empty as they might appear. Zacnafian knew as soon as he looked upon the still lake that he had caught up to his quarry. He dropped low into the crooks and crags along the wide cavern's wall and made his way about. Then he found the unnatural door and the cave complex beyond. Old feelings stirred within the spirit wraith, feelings of the kinship he had once known with Drizzt. New, savage emotions were quick to overwhelm them, though, as Matron Malice came into Zagnafian's mind with a wild fury. The spirit wraith burst through the door, swords drawn, and tore through the complex. A blanket flew into the air and came down in pieces as Ignafian's swords sliced across it a dozen times. When the fit of rage had played itself out, Matron Malice's monster settled back into a crouch to examine the situation. Drizzt was not at home. It took the hunting spirit wraith only a short time to determine that Drizzt, and a companion, or perhaps even two, had set out from the cavern a few days before. Zagnafian's tactical instincts told him to lie in wait, for surely this was no phony campsite, as had been the one outside the deep gnome city. Surely Zagnafian's prey meant to return. The spirit wraith sensed that Matron Malice, back on her throne in the drow city, would endure no delays. Time was running short for her. The dangerous whispers were growing louder every day, and Malice's fears and impatience cost her dearly this time. Only a few hours after Malice had driven the spirit wraith into the tunnels in pursuit of her renegade son, Drizzt, 
Belwar and Quacker returned to the cavern by a different route. Driz sensed at once that something was very wrong. He drew his blades and rushed across to the ledge, springing up to the door of the cave complex before Belwar and Clacker could even begin to question him. When they arrived at the cave, they understood Driz's alarm. The place was destroyed. Hammocks and bedrolls torn apart, bowls and a small box that had been stuffed with gathered food smashed and thrown to every corner. Clacker, who could not fit inside the complex, spun from the door and moved away, ensuring that no enemy was lurking in the far reaches of the large cavern. Maga Kamara, Belwer roared. What monster did this? Driz held up a blanket and pointed at the clean cuts in the fabric. Belwer did not miss the drow's meaning. Blades, the Burrow Warden said grimly. Fine and crafted blades. The blades of a drow, Driz finished for him. Far are we from Manza Baranz, and Belwer reminded him. Far out in the wilds beyond the knowledge and sight of your kin. Driz knew better than to agree with such an assumption. For the bulk of his young life, Driz had witnessed the fanaticism that guided the lives of Loth's foul priestesses. Driz himself had traveled on a raid many miles to the surface of the realm a raid that suited no better purpose than to give the spider queen a sweet taste of the blood of surface elves. Do not underestimate Matron Malice, he said grimly. If it is indeed your mother come to call, Belwer growled, clapping his hands together, she will find more than she expected waiting for her. We shall lie for her, the swift nebulon promised, the three of us. Do not underestimate Matron Malice, Driz said again. This encounter was no coincidence, and Matron Malice will be prepared for whatever we have to offer. You cannot know that, Belwer reasoned, but when the Borough Warden recognized a sincere dread on the drow's lavender eyes, all conviction drifted out of his voice. They gathered what few usable items remained and set out only a short while later, again going west to put even more distance between themselves and Menza Baranzan. Clacker took up the lead, for few monsters would willingly put themselves in the path of a hook whore. Belwer walked in the middle, the solid anchor of the party, and Drizzt floated along silently far to the rear, taking it upon himself to protect his friends if his mother's agents should catch up to them. Belwer had reason that they might have a good lead on whoever ruined their home. If the perpetrators had set off in pursuit of them from the cave complex, following their trail to the Tower of the Dead Wizard, many days would pass before the enemy even returned to the cavern of the lake. Driz was not so secure in the Burrowarn's reasoning. He knew his mother all too well. After several interminable days, the troop came into a region of broken floors, jagged walls, and ceilings filled with stalactites that leered down at them like poised monsters. They closed in the ranks, needing the comfort of companionship. Despite the attention it might draw, Belwer took out his magically lighted brooch and pinned it on his leather jack. Even in the glow, the shadows thrown by sharp-edged mounds promised only peril. The region seemed more hushed than the Underdark's usual stillness. Rarely did travelers in the subterranean world of the realms hear the sounds of other creatures, but here the quiet felt more profound as though all life somehow had been stolen from the place. Clacker's heavy steps and the scrape of Belwer's boots echoed unnervingly off the many stone faces. 
Beller was the first to sense approaching danger. Subtle vibrations in the stone called out to the swift Neblum that he and his friends were not alone. He stopped Clacker with his pick hand, then looked back to Driz to see if the drow shared his uneasy feelings. Driz signaled to the ceiling, then levitated up into the darkness, seeking an ambush spot among the many stalactites. The drow drew one of his scimitars, and he ascended and put his other hand on the onyx figurine in his pocket. Belwer and Clacker set up behind a ridge of stone, the deep no mumbling through the refrain that would enchant his mithril hands. Both felt better in the knowledge that the drow warrior was above them, looking over them. But Driz was not the only one who figured the stalactites was an ambush spot. As soon as he entered the layer of jagged spear-like stones, the drow knew he was not alone. A form, slightly larger than Driz, but obviously humanoid, drifted out around a nearby stalactite. Driz kicked off a stone to propel himself at it, drawing his other scimitar as he went. He knew his peril a moment later, for his enemy's head resembled a four-tentacled octopus. Driz had never actually viewed such a creature before, but he knew what it was. An illithid, a mind flayer, and the most evil and most feared monster in all the Underdark. The Mind Flayer struck first, long before Drizzt had closed within his scimitar's limited range. The monster's tentacles wiggled and waved, and whoop! A cone of mental energy rolled over Drizzt. The drow fought back against the impending blackness with all of his willpower. He tried to concentrate on his target, tried to focus his anger, but the illithid blasted again. Another Mind Flayer appeared and fired its stunning force at Drizzt from the side. Belwar and Clacker could see nothing of the encounter, for Driz was above the radius of the Deep Gnome's illuminating brooch. Both sensed that something was going on above them, though, and the Burrow Warden risked a whispered call to his friend. Drizzt! His answer came only a moment later, when two scimitars clanged to the stone. Belwar and Clacker started toward the weapons in surprise, then fell back. Before them, the air shimmered and wavered, as if an invisible door to some other plane of existence was being opened. An illithid stepped through, appearing right before the surprised friends and letting out its mental blast before either of them even had time to cry out. Bellwell reeled and stumbled to the floor, but Clacker, his mind already in conflict between Hook, Horror, and Peck, was not so adversely affected. The mind flayer loosed its force again, but the hook horror stepped right through the stunning cone and smashed the illithid with a single blow of his enormous clawed hand. Clacker looked all around and then up. Other mind flayers were drifting down from the ceiling, two holding Driz by the ankles. More invisible doors opened. In an instant, blast after blast came at Clacker from every angle, and the defense of his dual personality's inner turmoil quickly began to wear away. Desperation and welling outrage took over Clacker's actions. Clacker was solely a hook whore at that moment, acting on the instinctive rage and ferocity of this monstrous breed. But even the hard shell of a hook whore proved no defense against the mind flayer's continuing insidious blasts. Clacker rushed to the two holding Drizzt. The darkness caught him halfway there. He was kneeling on the stone. He knew that much. Clacker crawled on, refusing to surrender, refusing to relinquish the sheer anger. Then he lay on the floor with no thoughts of Drizzt or Belwer or rage. There was only darkness. Part 4 There had been many times in my life 
when I have felt helpless. It is perhaps the most acute pain a person can know, founded in frustration and ventless rage. The nick of a sword upon a battling soldier's arm cannot compare to the anguish a prisoner feels at the crack of whip. Even if the whip does not strike the helpless prisoner's body, it surely cuts deeply at his soul. We are all prisoners at one time or another in our lives, prisoners to ourselves or to the expectations of those around us. It is a burden that all people endure, that all people despise, and that few people ever learn to escape. I consider myself fortunate in this respect, for my life has traveled along a fairly straight running path of improvement. Beginning in Menza Barans and under the relentless scrutiny of the evil spider queen's high priestesses, I suppose that my situation could only have improved. In my stubborn youth, I believed that I could stand alone, that I was strong enough to conquer my enemies with sword and with principles. Arrogance convinced me that by sheer determination I could conquer helplessness itself. Stubborn and foolish youth, I must admit, for when I look back on those years now, I see quite clearly that rarely did I stand alone, and rarely did I have to stand alone. Always there were friends, true and dear, lending me support even when I believed I did not want it, and even when I did not realize they were doing it. Zagnathian, Belwer, Clacker, Mushi, Brunor, Regis, Caddy Bree, Wolfgar, and of course, Guinevar, dear Guinevar, these were the companions who justified my principles, who gave me the strength to continue against any foe, real or imagined. These were the companions who fought the helplessness, the rage, the frustration. These were the friends who gave me my life. Drizdorden. Chapter 16. Insidious Chains. Clacker looked down to the far end of the long and narrow cavern, to the many-towered structure that served as a castle to the Illithid community. Though his vision was poor, the Hukor could make out the squat forms crawling about on the rock castle, and he could plainly hear the chiming of their tools. They were slaves, Clacker knew. Duergar, goblins, deep gnomes, and several other races that Clacker did not know, serving their illithid masters with their skills and stonework, helping to continue the improvement and design of the huge lump of rock that the mine flayers had claimed at their home. Perhaps Belwer, so obviously suited to such endeavors, was already at work on the massive building. The thoughts fluttered through Clacker's mind and were forgotten, replaced by the Hukor's less involved instincts. The Mind Flayer's stunning blasts had reduced Clacker's mental resistance, and the wizard's polymorph spell had taken more of him, so much so that he could not even realize the lapse. Now his twin identities battled evenly, leaving poor Clacker in a state of simple confusion. If he understood his dilemma, and if he had known the fate of his friends, he might have considered himself fortunate. The Mind Flayer suspected that there was more to Clacker than his Hukor body could indicate. The Illithid community's survival was based on knowledge and by reading thoughts, and they 
could not penetrate the jumble that was Clacker's mind. They saw clearly that the mental workings within the bony's exoskeleton were decidedly unlike those expected from a simple underdark monster. The mind flayers were not foolish masters, and they knew, too, the dangers of trying to decipher and control an armed and armored quarter-ton killing monster. Clacker was simply too dangerous and unpredictable to be kept in close quarters. In the Illithid slave society, however, there was a place for everyone. Clacker stood upon an island of stone, a slab of rock perhaps fifty yards in diameter and surrounded by a deep and wide chasm. With him were assorted other creatures, including a small herd of Rothe and several battered Durgar, who obviously had spent too long under the Illithid's mind-melting influences. The great dwarves sat, or stood, blank-faced, staring out at nothing at all and awaiting. Clacker soon came to understand their turn on the supper table of their cruel masters. Clacker paced the island's perimeter, searching for some escape, though the peck part of him would have recognized the futility of it all. Only a single bridge spanned the warding chasm, a magical and mechanical thing that recoiled tightly against the chasm's other side when not in use. A group of mind flayers with a single burly ogre slave approached the lever that controlled the bridge. Immediately, Clacker was assaulted by their telepathic suggestions. A single course of action cut through the jumble of his thoughts, and at that moment he learned of his purpose on the island. He was to be the shepherd for the mind flayer's flock. They wanted a gray dwarf and a rove, and the shepherd's slave obediently went to work. Neither victim offered any resistance. Clacker neatly twisted the gray dwarf's neck, then, not so neatly, bashed in the rose's skull. He sensed that the illithids were pleased, and his notion brought some curious emotions to him, satisfaction being the most prevalent. Hoisting both creatures, Clacker moved to the gorge to stand opposite the group of illithids. An illithid pulled back on the bridge's waist-high lever, Clacker noted that the action of the trigger was away from him, an important fact, though the hookor did not exactly understand why at that time. The stone and metal bridge grumbled and shook and shot out from the cliff opposite Clacker. It rolled out toward the island until it caught securely on the stone at Clacker's feet. Come to me, came one illithid's command. Clacker might have managed to resist the command if he had seen any point in it. He stepped out onto the bridge, which groaned considerably under his bulk. Halt! Drop the gills! Came another suggestion when the hookor was halfway across. Drop the kills! The telepathic voice cried again. And get back to your island! Clacker considered his alternatives. The rage of the Hukor welled within him, and his thoughts that were peck, angered by the loss of his friends, were in complete agreement. A few strides would take him to his enemies. On command from the Mind Flayers, the ogre moved up to the lip of the bridge. It stood a bit taller than Clacker and was nearly as wide, but it was unarmed and would not be able to stop him. Off to the side of the burly guard, though, Clacker recognized a more serious defense. The illithid who pulled the lever to activate the bridge stood by it still, one hand, a curious four-fingered appendage, 
eagerly clenching and unclenching it. Clocker would not get across the remaining portion and passed the blocking ogre before the bridge rolled away from under him, dropping him to the depths of the chasm. Reluctantly, the hookor placed his kills on the bridge and stepped back to his stone island. The ogre came out immediately and retrieved the dead dwarf and wrote for its masters. The illithid then pulled the lever, and in the blink of an eye, the magical bridge snapped back across the gorge, leaving Clacker stranded once more. Eat, one of the illithids instructed. An unfortunate rove wandered by the hookor as the command came surging into his thoughts, and Clacker absently dropped the heavy claw into its head. As the illithids departed, Clacker sat down to his meal, reveling in the taste of blood and meat. His hook horror side won over completely during the raw feast, but every time Clacker looked back across the gorge and down the narrow cavern to the illithid castle, a tiny pecked voice within him piped out its concern for a swift neblin and drow. Of all the slaves recently captured in the tunnels outside the Illithid castle, Belwar Disengulp was the most sought after. Aside from the curiosity factor of the Swerf Nebula's mithril hands, Belwar was perfectly suited for the two duties most desired in an Illithid slave, working the stone and fighting in the gladiatorial arena. The Illithid slave auction went into an uproar when the Deep Gnome was marched forward. Bids of gold and magic items, private spells, and tomes of knowledge were thrown about with abandon. In the end, the Burrow Warden was sold to a group of three mind flayers, the three who had led the party that had captured him. Balwer, of course, had no knowledge of the transaction. Before it was ever completed, the deep gnome was ushered away down the dark and narrow tunnel and placed in a small, unremarkable room. A short while later, three voices echoed in his mind three unique telepathic voices that the deep gnome understood and could not forget, the voices of his new masters. An iron portcullis rose before Belwar, revealing a well-lighted circular room with high walls and rows of audience seats above them. To come out, one of the masters bade him, and the bro warden, fully desiring only to please his master, did not hesitate. When he exited the short passageway, he saw that several dozen mind flayers had gathered all about on stone benches. Those strange four-fingered illithid hands pointed down at him from every direction, all backed by the same expressionless octopus face. Following the telepathic link, though, Belwer had no trouble finding his master among the crowd, busily arguing odds and antes with a small group. Across the way, a similar portcullis opened and a huge ogre stepped out. Immediately, the creature's eyes went up into the crowd as it sought its own master, the focal point of his existence. This evil ogre beast has threatened me, my brave swift neblin champion, came the telepathic encouragement of Belwer's master a short while later, after all of the betting had been settled. Do destroy it for me. Belwer needed no further prompting. Nor did the ogre, having received a similar message from its master. The gladiators rushed each other furiously. But while the ogre was young and rather stupid, Belwer was a crafty old veteran. He slowed at the last moment and rolled to the side. The ogre, trying desperately to kick at him as it ended its charge, stumbled for just a moment. Too long. 
Bower's hammer hand crunched into the ogre's knee with a crack that resounded as powerfully as a wizard's lightning bolt. The ogre lurched forward, nearly doubling over, and Bower drove his pickaxe hand into the ogre's meaty backside. As the giant monster stumbled off balance to the side, Bellwer threw himself at its feet, tripping it to the stone. The burrow warden was up in an instant, leaping onto the prone giant and running right up it toward its head. The ogre recovered quickly enough to catch the Svefnebun by the front of his jack, but even as the monster started to hurl the nasty little opponent away, Bellwer dug his pickaxe hand deep into its chest. Howling in rage and pain, the stupid ogre continued his throw, and Bellwer was jerked out straight. The sharp tip of the pickaxe held its grip, and the deep gnome's momentum tore a wide gash in the ogre's chest. The ogre roared and flailed, freeing itself from the cruel mithril hand. A huge knee caught Belwar in the rump, launching him into the stone many feet away. The burr warden came back up to his feet after a few short bounces, dazed and smarting, but still desiring nothing but to please his master. He heard the silent cheering and telepathic shouting of every illithid in the room, but one call cut through the mental din with precise clarity. Kill it, Belwar's master commanded. Kill it, Belwar's master commanded. Belwar didn't hesitate. Still flat on its back, the ogre clutched at its chest, trying vainly to stop its lifeblood from flowing away. The wounds it had already suffered probably would have proved fatal, but Belwar was far from satisfied. The wretched thing had threatened his master. The burrow warden charged straight at the top of the ogre's head, his hammer hand leaning the way. Three quick punches softened the monster's skull, then the pickaxe dived in for the killing blow. The doomed ogre jerked wildly in the last spasms of its life, but Bellwer felt no pity. He had pleased his master. Nothing else in all the world mattered to the burrow warden at that moment. Up in the stands, the proud owner of the Svefnepplin champion collected his dew of gold and potion bottles. Contented that it had done well in selecting this one, the illithid looked back to Belwer, who still chopped and bashed at the corpse. Though it enjoyed watching his new champion at savage play, the illithid quickly sent out a message to cease. The dead ogre, after all, was also part of the bet. No sense in ruining dinner. At the heart of the illithid castle stood a huge tower, a gigantic stalagmite hollowed and sculpted to house the most important members of the stranger's community. The inside of the giant stone structure was ringed by balconies and spiraling stairways, each level housing several of the mine flares. But it was the bottom chamber, unadorned and circular, that held the most important being of all, the central brain. Fully twenty feet in diameter, this boneless lump of pulsating flesh tied the mine flayers' community together in telepathic symbiosis. The central brain was the composite of their knowledge, the mental eye that guarded their outside chambers and which had heard the warning cries of the illithid from the drow city, many miles to the east. To the illithids of the community, the central brain was the coordinator of their entire existence and nothing short of their god. Thus, only a few slaves were allowed within this special tower, captives with sensitive and delicate fingers that could massage the illithid god thing and soothe it with tender brushes and warm fluids. 
Drizdorden was among this group. The drow knelt on the wide walkway that ringed the room, reaching out to stroke the amorphous mass, feeling keenly its pleasures and displeasures. When the brain became upset, Drizd felt the sharp tingles and the tenseness of the in the vein tissues. He would massage more forcefully, easing his beloved master back to serenity. When the brain was pleased, Drizzt was pleased. Nothing else in all the world mattered. The renegade drow had found his purpose in life. Drizzt Orden had come home. A most profitable capture, that one, said the mind flare in its watery otherworldly voice. The creature held up the potions it had won in the arena. The other two illithids wiggled their four-fingered hands, indicating their agreement. Arena champion. One of them remarked telepathically, and tooled to dig, the third added aloud. A notion entered its mind, and thus the minds of the others. Perhaps to carve? The three illithids looked over to the far side of the chamber, where the work had begun on a new cubby area. The first illithid wiggled its fingers and gurgled. In time, the swift neblin will be put to such menial tasks. Now he must win for me more potions, more gold. A most profitable capture, as were all taken in the ambush, said the second. The hookor tends the herd, explained the third. And the drow tends the brain, gurgled the first. I noticed him as I ascended to our chamber. That one will prove a proficient masseuse. To the pleasure of the brain and to the benefit of us all. And there is this, said the second, one of his tentacles snapping out to nudge the third. The illithid held up an onyx figurine. Magic, wondered the first. Indeed, the second mentally responded. Linked to the astral plane, an entity stone, I believe. Have you called to it? The first asked aloud. Together, the other illithids clenched their hands. The mind flare signaled for no. A dangerous foe, explained the third. We thought it prudent to observe the beast on its own plane before summoning it. A wise choice, agreed the first. When will you be going? At once, said the second. And will you accompany us? The first illithid clenched its fists, then held out the potion bottle. Profits to be won, it explained. The other two wiggled their fingers excitedly. Then, as their companion retired to another room to count its winnings, they sat down in comfortable overstuffed chairs and prepared themselves for their journey. They floated together, leaving the corporeal bodies at rest on the chairs. They ascended beside the figurines linked to the astral plane, visible to them in their astral state as a thin silvery cord. They were beyond their companion's cavern now, beyond the stones and noises of the material plane, floating into the vast serenity of the astral world. Here, there were very few sounds other than the continuous chanting of the astral wind. Here, too, there was no solid structure, none in terms of the material world, with matter being defined in gradations of light. The illithids veered away from the figurine's silver cord as they neared the completion of their astral ascent. They would come into the plain near the entity of the great panther, but not so close as to make it aware of their presence. Illithids were not normally welcome guests. 
being despised by nearly every creature on every plane they traveled. They came fully into their astral state without incident and had little trouble locating the entity represented by the figurine. Guenevar romped through a forest of starlight in pursuit of the entity of the elk. Continuing the endless cycle, the elk, no less magnificent than the panther, leaped and sprang in perfect balance and unmistakable grace. The elk and Guenevar had played out the scenario a million times, and would play it out a million, million more. This was the order and harmony that ruled the panther's existence, that ultimately ruled the planes of all the universe. Some creatures, though, like the denizens of the lower planes, and like the mind flayers that now observe the panther from afar, could not accept the simple perfection of this harmony and could not recognize the beauty of this eternal hunt. As they watched the wondrous panther in its life's play, the illithids' only thoughts centered on how they might use the cat to their best advantage. Chapter 17. A Delicate Balance Balwer studied his latest foe carefully, sensing some familiarity with the armored beast's appearance. Had he befriended such a creature before, he wondered? Whatever doubts the Swift Nebun Gladiator might have had, though, could not break into the deep gnome's consciousness, for Balwer's Zillithid master continued its insidious stream of telepathic deceptions. Kill it, my brave champion. The lithid pleaded from its perch in the stands. It is your enemy, most assuredly, and it shall bring harm to me if you do not kill it. The hook whore, much larger than Belwer's lost friend, charged the swift neblin, having no reservations about making a meal of the deep gnome. Belwer coiled the stubbly legs under him and waited for the precise moment. As the hook whore bore down on him, its clawed hands wide to prevent him from dodging to the side, Belwar sprang straight up, his hammer hand leading the way right up into the monster's chest. Cracks ran all through the hook whore's exoskeleton from the sheer force of the blow, and the monster swooned as it continued forward. Belwer's flight made a quick reversal, for the hook horror's weight and momentum was much greater than the Swift Neblin's. He felt his shoulder snap out of joint, and he too nearly fainted from the sudden agony. Again, the callings of Belwer's illithid master overruled his thoughts and even the pain. The gladiators crashed together in a heap, Belwer buried beneath the monstrous bulk. The Hukora's encumbering size prevented it from getting its arms at the Burlworn, but it had other weapons. A wicked beak dived at Belwer. The deep gnome managed to get his pickaxe hand in its path, but still the Hukora's giant head pushed on. Twisting Belwer's arm backward, the hungry beak snapped and twisted barely an inch from the Burlworn's face. Throughout the stands of the large arena, Illithids jumped about and chatted excitedly, both in their telepathic mode and in the gurgling, watery voices. Fingers wiggled in opposition to the clenched fists as the mind flayers prematurely tried to collect on bets. Belwer's master, fearing the loss of his champion, called out to the hook-horror's master. Do you yield? it asked, trying to make the thoughts appear confident. The other illithid turned away smugly and shut down his telepathic receptacles. Belwer's master could only watch. The hook whore could not drive any closer. The swift Neblin's arm was locked against the stone at the elbow. The mithril pickaxe firmly holding back the monster's deadly beak. The hook whore reverted to a different tactic. 
raising its head free of Belwar's hand in a sudden jerking movement. Belwar's warrior's intuition saved him at that moment, for the hook horror reversed suddenly and the deadly beak dived back in. The normal reaction and expected defense would have been to swipe the monster's head to the side with the pickaxe hand. The hook horror anticipated such a counter, and Belwar anticipated that it would. Belwar threw his arm across in front of him, but shortened his reach so that the pickaxe passed well below the Hukora's plunging beak. The monster, meanwhile, believing that Belwar was attempting to strike a blow, stopped its dive exactly as it had planned. But the mithril pickaxe reversed its direction much quicker than the monster anticipated. Belwar's backhand caught the Hukora right up behind the beak and snapped its head to the side. Then, ignoring the searing pain from his injured shoulder, Belwar curled his other arm at the elbow and punched out. There was no strength behind the blow, but at that moment, the hookor came back around the pickaxe and opened his beak for a bite at the deep gnome's exposed face, just in time to catch a mithril hammer instead. Belwar's hand wedged far back in the Hukora's mouth, opening the beak more than it was designed to open. The monster jerked wildly, trying to free itself, each sudden twist sending waves of pain down the Burl Warden's wounded arm. Belwar responded with equal fury, whacking again and again at the side of the Hukora's head with his free hand. Blood oozed down the giant beak as the pickaxe dug in. Do you yield, Belwar's master shouted in its watery voice at the Hukora's master. The question was premature again, however, for down in the arena, the armored Hukora was far from defeated. It used another weapon, its sheer weight. The monster ground its chest into the lying deep gnome, trying simply to crush the life out of it. Do you yield, the Hukora's master retorted, seeing the unexpected turn of events. Belwar's pickaxe caught the Hukora's eye, and the monster howled in agony. Illithids jumped and pointed, wiggling their fingers and clenching and unclenching their fists. Both masters of the gladiators understood how much they had to lose. Would either participant ever be fit to fight again if the battle was allowed to continue? Mayhaps we should consider a draw, Belwar's master offered telepathically. The other Illithid readily agreed. Both masters sent messages down to the champions. It took several brutal moments to calm the fires of rage and end the contest, but eventually the Illithid suggestions overruled the gladiator's savage instincts of survival. Suddenly, both the deep gnome and the hookor felt an affinity for each other. And when the hook horror rose, it lent a claw to the swift Nevelin to help him to his feet. A short while later, Belwar sat on the single stone bench in his tiny, unadorned cell, just inside the tunnel to the circular arena. The burrow warden's hammer-wielding arm had gone completely numb, and a gruesome, purplish-blue bruise covered his entire shoulder. Many days would pass before Belwar would be able to compete in the arena again, and it troubled him deeply that he would not soon please his master. The Illithid came to him to inspect the damage. It had potions that could help heal the wound, but even with the magical aid, Belwar obviously needed time to rest. The Mind Flayer had other uses for the Swift Neblin, though. A cubby in his private quarters needed completing. Come, 
The illithid bayed Belwer, and the burrow warden jumped to his feet and rushed out, respectfully remaining astride behind his master. A kneeling drow caught Belwer's attention as the mine flayer led him through the bottom level of the central tower. How fortunate the Dark Elf was to be able to touch and bring pleasure to the central brain of the community. Belwer then thought no more of it, though he made the ascent to the structure's third level and to the suites of rooms that the three masters shared. The other two illithids sat in their chairs, motionless and apparently lifeless. Belwer's master paid little heed to the spectacle. It knew that its companions were far away in the astral travels and that their corporeal bodies were quite safe. The mind flayer did pause to wonder for just a moment how his companions fared in that distant plain. Like all illithids, Belwer's master enjoyed astral travel, but pragmatism, a definite illithid trait, kept the creature's thoughts on the business at hand. It had made a large investment in buying Belwer, an investment it was not willing to lose. The mind flayer led Belwer into a back room and sat him down on an unremarkable stone table. Then, suddenly, the illithid bombarded Belwer with telepathic suggestions and questions, probing it as it roughly set the injured shoulder and applied wrappings. Mind flayers could invade a creature's thoughts on first contact, either with their stunning blow or with the telepathic communications, but it could take ten days, even months, for an illithid to fully dominate its slave. Each encounter broke down more of the slave's natural resistance to the illithid's mental insinuations, revealed more of the slave's memories and emotions. Belwer's master was determined to know everything about this curious Fefneblin, about his strange crafted hands, and about the unusual company he chose to keep. This time, during the telepathic exchange, the illithid focused on the mithril hands, for it sensed that Belwer was not performing up to his capabilities. The illithid's thoughts probed and prodded, and some time later fell into a deep corner of Belwer's mind and learned a curious chant. Bivrip? Big question, Bower. Simply on reflex, the burrow warden banged his hands together, then winced in pain from the shock of the blow. The elephant's fingers and tentacles wiggled eagerly. It had touched upon something important, it knew. Something that could make its champion stronger. If the mind flayer allowed Belwer the memory of the chant, however, it would give back to the Svirfneblin a part of himself, a conscious memory of his days before slavery. The illithid handed Belwer still another healing potion, then glanced around to inspect its wares. If Belwer was to continue as a gladiator, he would have to face the Hakora again in the arena. By illithid rules, a rematch was required after a draw. Belwer's master doubted that the Svirfneblin would survive another battle against the armored champion. Unless... Dinendorden paced his lizard mount through the region of Menzelbaranzin's lesser houses, the most congested section of the city. He kept the cowl of his piwafwi pulled low about his face and bore no insignia revealing him as a noble of a ruling house. Secrecy was Denon's ally. Both from the watching eyes of his, this dangerous section of the city and from the disapproving glares of his mother and sister, Denon had survived long enough to understand the dangers of complacency. He lived in a state that bordered on paranoia. He never knew when Malice and Brisa might be watching. 
A group of bugbears sauntered out of the walking lizard's way. Fury swept through the proud elder boy of House de Warden at the slave's casual manner. Dinan's hand went instinctively to the whip at his belt. Dinan wisely checked his rage, though, reminding himself of the possible consequences of being revealed. He turned another of the many sharp corners and moved down through a row of connected stalagmite mounds. So you have found me, came a familiar voice from behind and to the side. Surprised and afraid, Dinan stopped his mount and froze in his saddle. He knew that a dozen tiny crossbows, at least, were trained on him. Slowly, Dinan turned his head to watch Jarlaxle's approach. Out here in the shadows, the mercenaries seemed much different from the overly polite and compliant drow Dinan had known in House Dorden. Or perhaps it was just the specter of the two sword-wielding drow guards standing by Jarlaxle's sides and Dinan's own realization that he didn't have Major Malice around to protect him. One should ask permission before entering another's house, Jarlaxle said calmly, but with definite threatening undertones. Common courtesy. I'm out in the open streets, Denon reminded him. Jarlaxle smiled, denied the logic. My house. Denon remembered his station, and the thoughts inspired some courage. Should a noble of our ruling house then ask Jarlaxle's permission before leaving his front gate? The elder boar growled, and what of Matron Banray, who would not enter the least of Menzel Brandon's houses without seeking permission from the appropriate matron mother? Should Matron Banray, too, ask permission of Jalaxel, the houseless rogue? Dinan realized that he might be carrying the insult a bit too far, but his pride demanded the words. Jalaxel relaxed visibly, and the smile that came to his face almost appeared sincere. So you have found me he said again, this time dipping into his customary bow. State your purpose and be done with it. Dinan crossed his arms over his chest belligerently, gaining confidence at the mercenary's apparent concessions. Are you so certain that I was looking for you? Jalaxel exchanged grins with his two guards, snickers from unseen soldiers in the shadows of the lane, stole a good measure of Dinan's budding confidence. State your business, elder boy. Jalaxel said more pointedly, and be done with it. Dinan was more than willing to complete the encounter as quickly as possible. I require information concerning Zincarla, he said bluntly. The spirit wraith of Zagnafian has walked the underdog for many days. Too many, perhaps? Jalaxel's eyes narrowed as he followed the other boy's reasoning. Matron Malice sent you to find me, he stated as much as asked. Dinan shook his head, and Jalaxel did not doubt the sincerity. You are wise, as you are skilled at the blade, the mercenary offered graciously, slipping into a second bow, one that seems somehow ambiguous out here in Jarlaxle's dark world. I have come of my own initiative, Dinan said firmly. I must find some answers. Are you afraid, elder boy? Concerned, Dinan replied sincerely, ignoring the mercenary's taunting tone. I never make the error of underestimating my enemies. Or my allies. Jarlaxel cast him a confused glance. I know what my brother has become, Dinan explained, and I know who Zaknafian once was. Zaknafian is a spirit wraith now, Jarlaxel replied, under the control of Major Malice. Many days, Dinan said quietly, believing the implications of his words spoke loudly enough. Your mother asked for Zincala, Jarlaxel retorted a bit sharply. It is Loth's greatest gift, given only to so that the Spider Queen is pleased in return. 
Matron Malice knew the risk when she requested Zinkala. Surely you understand, elder boy, that spirit wraiths are given for the completion of a specific task. And what are the consequences of failure, Denon asked, bluntly matching Jarlaxle's perturbed attitude. The mercenary's incredulous stare was all the answer Denon needed. How long does Zagnafian have? Denon asked. Jarlaxle shrugged noncommittally and answered with a question of his own. Who can guess at Loth's plans? he asked. The Spider Queen can be a patient one. If the gain is great enough to justify the weight, is Drizzt's value such? Again the mercenary shrugged. That is for Loth and for Loth alone to decide. Denon started Jalaxo for a long moment until he was certain that the mercenary had nothing left to offer him. Then he turned back to his leisured mount and pulled the cowl of his Boafui low. Then he regained his saddle. Denon spun about, thinking to issue one final comment, but the mercenary and his guards were nowhere to be found. Biv rip! Bellwork cried, completing the spell. The burrow-worn banged his hands together again, and this time did not wince, for the pain was not so intense. Sparks flew when the mithril hands crashed together, and Belwer's master clapped his four-fingered hands in absolute glee. The illithid simply had to see its gladiator in action now. It looked about for a target and spotted the partially cut cubby. A whole set of telepathic instructions roared into the Burrow Warden's mind as the illithid imparted mental images of the design and depth it wanted for the cubby. Belwer moved right in. Unsure of the strength in his wounded shoulder, the one guiding the hammer hand, he led with the pickaxe. The stone exploded into dust under the enchanted hand's blow, and the illithid sent a clear message of its pleasure flooding into Belwer's thoughts. Even the armor of a hook whore would not stand against such a blow. Belwer's master reinforced the instructions it had given to the deep gnome, then moved into an adjoining chamber to study. Left alone to his work, so very similar to the tasks he had worked for all of the century of his life, Belwer found himself wondering. Nothing in particular crossed the Burrow Warden's few coherent thoughts. The need to please his illithid master remained the foremost guidance of his movements. For the first time since his capture, though, Belwer wondered. Identity. Purpose. The enchanting spell song of his mithril hands ran through his mind again, became a focus of his unconscious determination to sort through the blur of his captor's insinuations. Biv-rip, he muttered again, and the word triggered a more recent memory, an image of a drow elf kneeling and massaging the god thing of the illithid community. Drizzt, Belwer muttered under his breath, but the name was forgotten in the next bang of his pick hand obliterated by the swift Neblin's continuing desire to please his illithid master. The cubby had to be perfect. A lump of flesh rippled under an ebon-skinned hand, and a wave of anxiety flooded through Drizzt, imparted by the central brain of the Mind Flayer community. The drow's only emotional response was sadness, for he could not bear to see the brain in distress. Slender fingers kneaded and rubbed. Drizzt lifted a bowl of warm water and poured it slowly over the flesh. Then Drizzt was happy, for the flesh smoothed out under his skilled touch, and the brain's anxious emotions soon replaced by a teasing hint of gratitude.
Behind the kneeling drow, across the wide walkway, two illithids watched it all and nodded approvingly. Drow elves always had proved skilled at this task, and this latest captive was one of the finest so far. The illithids wiggled their fingers eagerly at the implications of the shared thought. The central brain had detected another drow intruder in the illithid webs that were the tunnels beyond the long and narrow cavern, another slave to massage and soothe. So the central brain believed. Four illithids moved out from the cavern, guided by the images imparted by the central brain. A single drow had entered their domain, an easy capture for four illithids. So the mind flayers believed. And that brings us to the end of chapter 17 of R.A. Salvatore's The Legend of Drizzt series, book two, Exile. Thank you, everybody, again, for listening in. I just want you to know how much I do appreciate all of the words of encouragement and love that I have received from those of you who are such huge fans as I am of Drizzta Warden and the writings of R.A. Salvatore. I do intend to continue reading for as long as everyone enjoys it. I am loving this, and I'm glad that you do too. Please, again, pass it on to all your friends. Uh, you can reach out to me at Twitter at Crow underscore HVVH. Again, at Crow, K-R-O-W-E underscore HVVH. On Instagram, Chadwick1224. And Facebook, Chadwick Daigle, D apostrophe A-I-G-L-E. Thank you, everyone, for listening in. I also want to throw it out there again. I am going to be having a podcast uh, streaming a and d game that I will be playing with a bunch of friends. I will be running the game. And the name of the stream will be called The Wizard of Dind. Thanks again, everybody. Keep your ears out for that podcast of the streaming game at the end of September. Thank you, everyone. Have a great day. Bye-bye.